Well, today is a bit of a bittersweet season of life in a lot of ways. Um, for some of you, you watched preseason football last night, which is just a disappointment. For some of you, you're on the brink of going back to school. And you're maybe you're excited about seeing your friends, but then there's that whole thing about school. <laughs> Today's a bittersweet day for me personally because we are at the end of our summer series that we've been team preaching through called But God. And it's bittersweet because I feel like this has been a really meaningful series to a lot of people in this room. And, and yet it's sweet because I'm really excited about what God has for us. But before we jump into that, I want to do a bit of a recap in case uh, your summer travels took you here and there, uh, like mine did, a, a, bit, a bit of a recap about kind of where we've been. Lance started off this series talking about the idea that families are dysfunctional from the life of Isaac, and uh, later in Isaac's life he says this, but the God of my father has been with me. Trevor, week two, talked about the fact that death is certain, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. He will receive me. Our buddy Brian Powers, week three, talked about this temptation has power over me. That week, the text was no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability with the temptation. He'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The next week I preached on the idea that I can't make it. I'm going to fail. Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My good friend Mark Neal, the next week, preached on you can run, not but you can't hide. Uh, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. In his grace, God pursued Jonah as he ran, just like he still pursues runners today. The next week I preached on the idea that life is broken. We see that David remained in the wilderness. He was stuck. We see that Paul sought him, uh, saw rather sought him, sorry. Um, But God did not give him into his hand. God has a plan and God has a people. The next week, Neil talked about the fact that the future looks uncertain from the life of Daniel. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. The week after that, our friend Brian Loveless talked about evil happens. It's a reality of living in a broken world. In Genesis 50, the life of Joseph. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The next week I talked about this looks impossible. We talked about a desperate father with a son in a desperate need for healing. And Jesus says these glorious words, bring him to me. And Jesus speaks life over this boy, but he falls over. People think the boy has died, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he'll do the same for us in our impossible situation. Ed Trinkle, my buddy from Philly, the next week talked about the idea that we've failed. Some of you really enjoyed that a Philly fan dropped his meatball at a baseball game. You got way too much joy out of that in the illustration, and we need to repent of that later. Talked about the life of Nehemiah. They refused to obey, but 
you are God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness. And you did not forsake them and you're not going to forsake us. Last week, Lance talked about, I can't afford to be generous. And he mentioned 1 Samuel 16, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And the reason that's so important that that's where the Lord's looking is because where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And the reason we do that recap is not just so that you can be reminded of kind of where we've been or maybe the one you need to go back on YouTube and, and listen to again. Essentially what this has been this summer is just a simple word study. Depending on what translations you have and how broadly the search engine will look for it, there's somewhere between 40 and 60 times, maybe as many as high as 65 times, that this idea of but the Lord or but God or but Jesus appears throughout the scriptures. And I, I just cover all this to say you can Google but God verses and do your own study on this. You can open up your Bible app and search but God. You can go to BibleStudyTools.com or Bible Hub and, and you can search these things. I just say that to say these passages that we didn't explore are still ready for your exploration. So just because this sermon series is ending, if this has been meaningful to you, if you find yourself in a season where you're desperate to hang on to this idea of but God in the midst of a struggle, I just encourage you, it's still available. Uh, keep digging. But this morning we're going to jump in to our final week in this series. So grab your Bible if you would. If you don't have one, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, and as we say every week, if you don't own a Bible, please keep that. That is our gift to you. But let's hold up our Bibles and let's declare this this morning with some conviction and some passion. Here we go. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, page 909. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you. 2 Corinthians chapter number 7 this morning. Really just going to look at a couple verses, even though it's an incredible passage. We're just going to zoom in. 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. And I want to start with verse number five, where the apostle Paul says this to the church at Corinth. He said, even when we came into Macedonia, and I want you to hear the anguish of this, our bodies had no rest. Have you ever said to somebody close to you, man, I wake up every morning and I'm still tired. Monday morning rolls around and I feel like I didn't have a weekend. He said, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn. That, that word afflicted literally means pressures to press in, to, to squeeze in. You can literally, in our vernacular, say the walls were closing in. At every turn, there was more pressure. You could say at every turn, the road got more narrow. Anybody feel that way today? Or felt that way lately? Or somebody you care about seems to be in the pressure cooker? And then he says this, fighting without, fear within. I almost think that describes the United States of America since 2020. Fighting without, fear within. I'm surrounded by conflict and I'm infested with anxiety. 
You know, there's, there's two extremes of people, people who really, really hate conflict. They try hard to avoid it at any cost, usually by creating more conflict. And then there's people who love conflict and you're the people that these people try to avoid at all costs, right? Both people are probably equally unhealthy, right? And somewhere in the middle is just the reality that there is such a thing as conflict. If you have a viewpoint, there's conflict. If you have a viewpoint in social media, there's lots of conflict. God forbid. The amazing thing about social media is you can have a viewpoint about something you're completely uninformed about. Fighting without. And fear within. Part of the fear that the Apostle Paul is feeling in this moment, maybe you don't know this or maybe this is a review to you, uh, we actually think that the book of 2 Corinthians should be probably titled 4th Corinthians maybe. <laughs> that, that should be the, let's do a church vote. Let's, let's, that part's not inspired, we can change it. So technically 1st Corinthians wasn't really the first letter to the Corinthians, it's just the first one that God preserved in his word. We know that was at least the second letter because the first letter references a letter before that. You with me? Yeah. And then we get to second Corinthians where we know it's at least third, but then he references another letter that appears to be between those two letters. So this is fourth Corinthians at least. It might be seventh. I don't know. But between these two letters, he wrote a letter that he gave a title to like a heading. Maybe it's what he saved it as on his. No. He calls it the letter of anguish. (laughs) How would you like to open that attachment in your email? Hey, I sent you the letter of anguish. Uh, delete. I didn't get it, man. I'm sorry. That's a spam filter. Okay. And then he's waiting for a response, which is not like I'm waiting for an email back. Someone's got to go communicate with them and bring word back to me of how they received this. So I know that you've never done this, but I've heard that some people get in text arguments with their loved ones. And you'll send the snarky defense of your position And then the bubbles. And then the bubbles disappear and no text comes. And you're like, what kind of devil worshiper does that? And then the text bubbles will appear again and you're like, okay, let's go. And then they disappear again and you're like, listen, you man up and send that text. Essentially, the Apostle Paul's like, I got text bubbles everywhere. I don't know where we're at. Relationally. And so in the midst of all this conflict around me, fear of this relationship, my body is tired. I'm afflicted. I I feel like the walls are closing in. You could say that what the Apostle Paul is feeling here is the concept of isolation. The concept of I'm being squeezed into this little world where I feel so alone. I feel alone and the walls are closing in. Fighting without and fear within. Verse 6. But God. In the midst of the pressure cooker. In the midst of the isolation. In the midst of the outer and inner turmoil. Is the glorious truth of God. But God, the idea that that's not the end of the story and that's not all there is to the story, but God who 
comforts the downcast. <laughs> Y'all. Every word of scripture is equally inspired, but every now and then they just show off. And this is one of those show off moments. I, I want you to notice that it does not say, but God comforted me. Which, by the way, if that was the verse, if that was our but God text this morning, but God comforted me, we could all be like, amen. <laughs> not in this church so much, but like at other churches, amen. That would be so good. And literally, that's not what he says. He, he doesn't use this past tense, this is what God did. He uses this ongoing verb tense. God comforts the downcast. Like, not just this is what God did for me. This is what God does. And if that's not good enough, he says... Not, but God comforts the downcast, but God who comforts the downcast, which is literally saying, this is not just what God did for me. This is not just what God does. This is who he is. Like, this is the character and nature of God is he's in the business of comforting people who, by definition, need comfort. Hallelujah. I feel alone, but God is the source of all comfort. God is the source of comfort. Listen, if you've ever experienced comfort in any way in your life, it all has the same origin story. It came from the heart of God. He is the author of all comfort. He is the source of all comfort. At the beginning of this letter, 4th Corinthians... So we're going to call it ish. Chapter one. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great name. Father of mercies. What a better name. The God of all comfort. <laughs> I love that this is this. This outflow of praise to God the Father, because what did God the Son call God the Spirit? Anybody? The Comforter. So in a lovely Trinitarian way, God is chock full of comfort. He alone is the source of comfort. It is who He is. Therefore, it's what He does. Here's why this is important to me this morning. This summer, I, I don't know if it's just that these texts have dealt with difficulty in order to contrast the but God. Like, I, I don't know, I don't know what the deal is this summer. I don't know if it's been a particularly difficult summer in our church body with life circumstances, or I don't know if maybe we're just doing life in a more honest way with each other. But I just know there's a lot of hurting people in this room today. And some of you, the hurt that you're feeling actually isn't your hurt. You're experiencing pain on behalf of someone you care about. And I just want to let you off the hook this morning. You do not have to be the source of their comfort. Your calling is not to heal them, restore them, or even comfort them. On your best day, the best thing you can do 
is point to the single source of all comfort. I feel alone, but God is the source of comfort, which means we don't have to be. Let's continue with the text. I'm in the pressure cooker, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. Oh, you ever have a conversation with somebody and it's like this really big deal to you and you like work yourself up. You practice the speech on the way to the meeting and you like get there and you say the thing and they're like, okay, you're like, no, no, no. This is like what this sermon feels like to me today. Like, like y'all, this passage, I feel alone, but God has a strategy. I couldn't choose between the word strategy or system, but they both start with S and Jesus is God's the source. So we, we, God has a strategy for comfort. Here's why that's important. I think we talk about things like comfort as though it's this distant mystical mojo. Like God's up in heaven just sending good vibes. You know what I mean? He's like, hey, warm wishes, thoughts and prayers. Like, and there's actually a system that God has gloriously designed so that hurting men and women and young people can experience his comfort. We're going to model it for you. Hunter, would you please join me on stage? So this is Hunter Wood. If you don't know Hunter, um, Hunter is a graduate of Temple Christian School and uh, is called to ministry, is a student at Texas Baptist College and pseudo served as a like toe in the water intern last summer and legit has like been amazing this summer uh, as we gave him more and more responsibilities and opportunities. And I was going to say something else significant about you. I can't remember what it was. Oh, I remember. So you might not know this, um, but he's somewhat fond of the newest member of our ministerial staff, Nikki Briley. Um, Nikki came on staff after she graduated from college and launched our young adult ministry a year ago and is our ministry coordinator and, and just basically all around rock star. Um, and like yesterday afternoon, Hunter asked her to marry him and she said yes. <laughs> We celebrate and rejoice that with them. Um, yeah, so, but yet, even though he's really happy about that, we're going to make him afflicted, Nikki. Don't get mad at him. He's not afflicted over the engagement. He's very happy about that. But we're going to, hello, my name is Paul. Don't get the big head. You are not the Apostle Paul. So we're going to ignore the engagement part and be like, man, he's sorrowful. She said... We'll just pretend she said no. Okay. <laughs> Is it too soon? Okay. Um, I love standing next to him. It helps my posture. Um, so this is Paul, right? So hang with me. Paul needs comfort. Comfort has a single source. Hello, my name is God. I'm not putting this name tag on. I'm quite confident lightning would strike, although Lance is the insurance paid up. Let's just see what happens. Okay. All right. So I do want someone. So Paul, 
Paul, stay alone in your discomfort and your anguish. Okay. So we're going to go to who I think is one of my favorite persons in all of Temple Ministries. If you don't know Ron Stroud, you need to know Ron Stroud. Ron Stroud has been a member of this church for a minute. <laughs> has been a part of our leadership team for a minute. Y'all are like, what happened is a Pentecostal church. The pastor's walking in the aisles. Okay. Um, if you don't know what a leadership team is, maybe you come from a church background that has elders, uh, finance committee, um, advisor for staffing, like all of that stuff. He's been a part of that longer than I've been here. Uh, served as a deacon for many years. Incredible man of God. Uh, so much so that we're going to put a name tag on him that says, hello, my name is God. Now, we know how this really works. Lacey, is it okay if we let him be God for a minute? <laughs> And here's the thing about Ron, if you don't know Ron, Ron's battling cancer right now and has major surgery this Thursday. And I'm calling on the people of God to be interceding on his behalf. And so the irony of making him God is he's currently today in need of comfort from this God of all comfort. But we're going to let you be God for a minute. Is that cool? This is painting for us a picture in the text that's supposed to be revolutionary to us and life-changing to us. And that's this. The way that God gets comfort to hurting people is straight through the local church. It is through the body of Christ. Now, we believe the manifest goodness of God is available to every person who lives. There's common grace for us all. But this kind of comfort the Apostle Paul's talking about here doesn't mystically travel through the stars. It travels through his people. Because in this story, he doesn't say, but God comforted me, period, end of story. He says, God comforted me through the coming of Titus. So we're going to ask Titus. We're doing a little gender swap here with Titus. So, so Titus is being sent by the local church. We've experienced the comfort of God, and we are lending the comfort of God to the Apostle Paul. So, I'm not going to put your name tag on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, the way this works, the way this is supposed to work, is we live in biblical community. As we are together as the body of Christ, the local church, we experience through the praises of God and the preaching of God's word and the prayers of God's people and the breaking of bread and fellowship. And we experience the comfort of God that is supposed to be contagious. It's supposed to be infectious. The variant of comfort that we're supposed to be carrying out into the population is supposed to be real catchy. And so Titus goes and visits Paul. Paul writes this letter and goes... Thanks, y'all. I didn't experience the comfort of Titus. Come on. I didn't experience the comfort of the first church of Corinth.com. I experienced the comfort of God. Like when we comfort people, they're experiencing the comfort of God through us. How incredible is this? So, turn, school's fixing to start. It's time for us to pretend like we pay attention in class. So, pay attention to the grammar of this text. God comforts, right? 
He comforted how? By the coming of Titus. How else did God comfort? Not just by his coming. Also the comfort with which he comforted in y'all. That's the plural you. All y'all. Titus was doing biblical community life in the local church. So when he showed up with me, he couldn't help but spill over what he experienced among you. This is how God comforts hurting people. Some of us are praying for hurting people while they live isolated from the body of Christ. And we live isolated from the body of Christ. And we're hoping that God's warm fuzzies will meet them where they are. And I'm telling you, the way God comforts hurting people is people who've been comforted among the people of God going out into their life. That's how it works. Thank you. Y'all can have a seat. Ron, you can wear that as long as you feel courageous enough to do so. The current of comfort is community. It's local church, the biblical community. And I believe with all my heart that there are some maybe in this room today who are disappointed in God that he's not comforted you more in your sorrow while you live completely disconnected from relationships within the body of Christ. You've heard me say this before. Reggie Joyner said COVID didn't just kill the commute. COVID killed community. We already were the most disconnected version of church that's existed in the thousands of years since Christ's resurrection. And then COVID happened and we took another step away from one another. While wishing we were being comforted. While wanting the God of all comfort to show up at our house and do a door drop of comfort. This is God's strategy. If, if when I comfort someone else, it's God comforting them through me. I have two responses. If that's true. What a privilege. And what a responsibility. Because that means when I abdicate my post in the body of Christ, when I disconnect from the local church, I'm literally participating in hindering the flow of comfort to hurting people because I'm making life about me. We're surrounded by people who feel alone. What they need is the comfort of God. The way they will experience that is through the people of God who are living in biblical community. So back to the beginning of 4 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father Of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Do you believe that this morning, church? Do we believe that the God of all comfort comforts us in all our troubles? He doesn't always comfort us when we want the comfort or how we want the comfort or in the same fashion we want the comfort. But he can't help but do that. It's who he is. He comforts us in all our troubles. So that we feel better. No. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as equal to in the same way. The sufferings of Christ overflow to us. Is anybody grateful that the work of the cross applies to you? 
Are you grateful that the sufferings Christ endured apply to our sin debt? Anybody? In the same way, so also through Christ, our comfort overflows. This is the strategy for how the God of all comfort comforts hurting people. But we're not done with the text. The rest of verse 7. He tells us what a comfort it was that Titus came as he told us three things. Of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me. So that I rejoiced still more. In three verses, he went from reeling to rejoicing. (laughs) He went from, man, the walls are closing in, to I rejoiced still more. How did that happen? So if God is the source of our comfort, the local church is the strategy, then what does it actually look like? What's the substance? I feel alone, but God produces the substance of comfort. Here's what it is. First of all, it's longing. It's longing. I I would submit to you, we don't experience the comfort of community without being inconvenienced. That word longing here means earnest desire that moves us. So it's not a passive want, right? It's an active want. I desire this on such a level I will get up and do something about it. A lot of us, right, if, if it's true that, that a huge percentage of the population are introverts, community doesn't come natural. Some of us who are extroverts, we don't want community because our job requires us to be extroverts. So church is the time when I can be off the clock. I ain't talking to nobody. I used to be an extrovert. And then God called me to preach. And now I'm like, I need a break from humans. It's a true story. Ministry has beat the extrovert out of me. It's beat the other stuff out of me too, but I... I can't, I'm trying to get better at that. This community of comfort involves a commitment. An earnest longing. And listen to me, church. You don't have to long for community. You can just long for comfort and do the work of community. You don't have to be a people person to want the presence of God. If we understand that that's how we experience it, then it's not about what comes natural. It's not about what we feel like. Number one is longing. Number two is mourning. We're going to park on this one for a minute. Oh, there's a lot I want to say here, but I want to try to not chase too many rabbits. I, mourning, if we look in a broad scheme of Scripture, can mean three things at least. This text is talking about a specific form of mourning. We'll focus in on that in a minute. But one of the things that mourning means as we look at the scriptures is the concept of grieving 
with people who are grieving. We are commanded to weep with those who weep. The reason I start there is to say this. Many of you have said to me that you don't like going to community groups because people in the circle cry. And what I would say to you is, whether or not you are comfortable with someone else's tears is not the barometer to whether or not we are commanded to weep with those who weep. I get that it's uncomfortable for some people. I get it. Uh, my wife and I are very different emotional beings. My wife cries once a year whether she needs to or not. I cry watching a commercial about, like, life insurance. And I'm like, oh, that old couple holding hands? Like, I don't know. Um, but I'm less concerned about your temperament. And I'm more concerned... About whether or not you're experiencing the comfort of God. That happens when we sit in a circle and when someone's grieving, we have a biblical mandate to carry their burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So sitting in the circle and somebody saying, hey, this is going on in my life and they start to cry. I want you to hear me right now. Healthy people are sad about sad things. Can we in the church stop criticizing people for crying when their heart's hurting? Unhealthy people think you should never show emotions. That's not a sign of spiritual maturity or emotional maturity. So I would lovingly say, if you're resisting sitting in a community group because someone cries, it's time to grow up. Matter of fact, maybe they need somebody else to care enough to sit in front of their tears and say, I see you and I'm present. Your tears aren't going to run me off. Because it might just be you next semester. The reality is this. I'll use Ron as an example. I've shed tears on his behalf praying for his cancer. But I can take you back to eight years ago where I watched him shed tears for my struggles too. That's how that works. That concept of mourning, though, is not what the text is talking about here. That was just an opportunity for me to say all those things I really wanted to say. (laughs) It's biblical. It's just not that text. What this text is actually talking about is mourning over the conviction of sin. So, 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, 3 Corinthians, the letter that we don't have, I really want to read it one day, because apparently it was a doozy. Apparently the Apostle Paul was like, no, that's just sin, which I know we don't do that anymore in the U.S. That's just sin. And they wept over the conviction of sin in their life. They grieved sin. Look down at verse 10. Godly grief produces a changed life. Repentance. Life change. Godly grief produces repentance. That leads to salvation and brings no regret. 
But worldly grief produces death. So there's two different kinds of grief for sin, godly and worldly. Worldly grief will grieve, I got caught. Worldly grief will grieve, I guess I have to quit now. Worldly grief will grieve, oh, there's going to be consequences I won't enjoy. Godly grief says, God, you're right. This is wrong. Set me free through the power of your resurrection. But you know, there's another kind of worldly grief. It's the grief of the person who's repented and still lives in bondage to shame. That's not godly grief. That's death. That's the law. John Piper said, if Satan cannot keep you from regretting your sin, then he'll do his best to keep you from enjoying your forgiveness. Some of you have experienced freedom in Jesus from things that you still live in shame about. That's not godly grief. He's not impressed by you beating yourself up. He's already been to the cross. Godly grief produces repentance. How does that relate to community? I want you to hear him about to say, this is again the whole. It is my mission to live in such open, vulnerable community that it would be really hard for me to cheat on my marriage and commit adultery. Like, I want to make it really difficult. I'd have to turn into, like, Tom Cruise and have secret, like, that's the kind of community I want to live into. I want to live in such community that I can't steal money without people seeing. I want to live in such community that I can't slip into addiction. And there's, like, nine of them I'd really enjoy. I want to slip into addiction without people seeing it in my life. Right? If we live in godly community, it should be hard for us to cheat on our spouse. That kind of conviction of sin might produce grief. And that's a good thing. That's part of God's strategy is when the heat of life is bearing in on us. Together, we're pursuing his comfort. third word here is the word zeal. And in this context, the Apostle Paul is talking about zeal for him. But let's give context to the context. They didn't have zeal for Paul. They had zeal for a gospel-centric, spirit-infused anointing that was on Paul's ministry. What they wanted from Paul really was a zeal for the manifest presence of God. And here's, here's how I think that works in biblical community. There are days where my concerns or my struggles or my fears or my grief takes that fire for God and it feels like a tiny little match with just an embarrassing little flicker on it. But when you bring your little match to my little match, then we burn a little bit brighter with zeal for the presence of God. Right? That's... That's the substance of biblical community that warms our hearts. That word zeal literally means heat. Matter of fact, to the point of boiling is what that word means. 
You could even call it fire. Our hearts are broken over the fire that we see destroying the island of Maui. I don't know. Every time I've looked, it's been a higher death toll. But when I first got up this morning, it was up to 93. Fire is a powerful thing. I recently heard Ben Stewart, the pastor of Passion City Church in Washington, D.C., tell a story about fire. He, he has a friend who was a special forces um, military personnel. And that guy said, man, you need to read this book called Fire, where it talks about the special forces mentality, because you're going to see a ton of like spiritual and gospel illusions in this. You should really read this book. Ben Stewart said, sure. So he starts reading the book Fire, and it's literally just a scientific book about the substance of fire. And according to Ben Stewart, he read two-thirds of the book before he finally called his friend and went, there's nothing about special forces here. There's, there's nothing in this that I'm seeing like the kingdom of God. And his buddy was like, oh, it was called Gates of Fire, not Fire. My bad. <laughs> this is why men don't read books. Ben Stewart said, but I was hooked. I was two-thirds in. I had to finish the book. And he learned in that book something that maybe some of you know or maybe you remember from school. He learned, again, about the fire triangle. For a fire to be stable enough to grow and then expand and spread, you have to have the fire triangle. You can have... A fire without all three elements, but it's going to go out. It's not going to be stable. It's definitely not going to grow, and it's definitely not going to spread. The the first foundational element of the fire triangle is fuel. There has to be something that can burn, or you have to put an element on the thing to help it become an element that will burn, right? There has to be, which is why so often, as is the case in Maui, so often you see a, a season of drought, in a national forest, right? So there's a lot of dry kindling there. It's fuel. But it's not just going to magically burst into flames. There has to be heat. The second element of the fire triangle is heat. Specifically, there has to be a, a temperature that is raised to the point of ignition. So in the case of many of the forest fires that we've seen, uh, especially out on the West Coast, it was a lightning strike. So you already had a lot of very dry fuel, and then there is heat to ignition temperature through a lightning strike. But even then, it will not continue to grow, it will not continue to spread, it will not be stable enough without oxygen. Right? Anybody remember this from school? The fire triangle, fuel, heat, and oxygen. Specifically, in the book Fire, they study a storm called Storm King. It's called Storm King because it took place on Storm King Mountain. It tells the story of in the midst of a drought in a forest, lots of fuel, there was a lightning strike, created heat to the temperature of ignition, and right as the lightning struck, the wind picked up to sustained gusts of over 40 miles an hour. And in that moment, what was a three-acre fire became a 2,400-acre fire. 14 firefighters lost their lives. 
Because there was the fire triangle. Here's why I mentioned that story. I believe this text is teaching us about the comfort triangle. Like if I really want to experience the comfort of God, because he's the source. I only experience that in community. That's the strategy. Here's the substance. Here's the comfort triangle. The fuel is our commitment, our longing. Our get up off the couch and choose to inconvenience ourselves. To be in community and to offer community to others. That's the fuel. What's the heat that's called life? Suffering, conviction of sin, that's mourning. In the text, that's the mourning. The stuff that would bring a tear to someone's eye. That's the heat. And the oxygen is none other than the wind of the Spirit. It is zeal for the manifest presence of God. In this setting, you just might walk away going, I just experienced comfort. I just experienced the God of all comfort showing right up in the midst of my struggle. Let me share this and I'm almost done. Friday night, we had our first scrimmage of the year here at Temple Christian School. And um, the game started a little bit late uh, because we have a policy. You can't start a game until it's below 105. For any of my Pennsylvania family who are watching, write that in your notes. 104 degrees, we play football. I just want you to understand that. Um, The irony is, I was standing with our head of school, Neil Neil Childs, and our AD, head football coach, when it dropped. I was standing there when it dropped from 105 to 104. I felt no difference whatsoever. So, as we're dragging our dehydrated selves to our cars, at the end of the game, my phone rang. My phone rang from somebody who had been a part of our church. Um, Like several families during the pandemic, they're they're one of the families who took that as a reset time. They bought a bunch of property outside of the Metroplex and and moved uh, outside of town, moved out of Fort Worth. They haven't really super locked into a church since they've moved out there. And he called because he needed to talk to his pastor. He called because a couple hours before that phone call, he sat down with his best friend who told him about a tragic diagnosis he received that morning. A guy who thought he was healthy two weeks ago got some really, really bad news. And in that moment, he called and said, man, I don't know how to encourage this guy. I have no idea what to say. I have no idea what to do. I'm so shocked by this and wrecked by this. I didn't know what to do, so I called you. And I didn't know what to say either, so I just made much of the faithfulness of God on that phone call hung up with him. There were tears on that phone call. Marisa was sitting next to me. We're driving down the road. By the time I got off the phone, she knew about this sermon. I I had talked to her about it. I don't always do that, but I was really excited about this one, so I talked to her about it. 
And uh, I try to make her not have to hear it three times, so I usually don't um, make her sit through it three times. But I talked to her about this. I hung up the phone, drove another mile down the road, and I went, Huh, guess what just happened? That guy who just got that terrible diagnosis needed some comfort. The person who was trying to comfort him needed to be comforted by somebody he hoped had been in the presence of God. God just spoke words through me that I read in his word. And it was just a normal conversation. I just saw it different because of this text. <laughs> and I'm just telling you, I just believe with all my heart God's calling you to inconvenience yourself to real community here so that we can grieve together and grow together. So that God will ignite a passion, a fire in us for his presence. Because there is a desperately hurting world who needs to experience the God of all comfort. So in the coming days, you're going to get an invitation to community groups starting up for the semester. That invitation might come in a text or an email or even a face-to-face conversation. Maybe even, God forbid, a phone call. What kind of creep does that nowadays? And I want you to know that the reason we are inviting you into community is not because we get paid more for the percentages of attenders who attend community groups. There's no bonus structure. We are not inviting you into that for our benefit. I was talking about this sermon to one of my friends, and he said, this is God's ordained pyramid scheme of comfort. I said, that is sacrilegious. And then I said, I'm totally going to repeat that. (laughs) This is the pyramid scheme, though, where the people at the top don't get richer. We all get more wealthy and comfort. We're only inviting you to this because we think you might need some comfort or one of you might need comfort from one another. So I would challenge you that before you get asked, maybe this morning you would say, God, here's my yes. I'm willing to inconvenience myself to connect with the body of Christ. Maybe today you're like, dude, I don't really need a lot of comfort. Life's okay. Awesome. Then we really need you to be a conduit of comfort to some other people. Because there's a lot of hurting people to your right and your left.